Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 7, Late Bronze Age Collapse. At the very height of Mycenaean power and prestige in the Mediterranean Sea, the Greeks came to blows with the Trojans in an epic ten-year war. However, there is no single authoritative text that tells the entire events of the Trojan War. Instead, the story is assembled from a variety of sources. Those would be the Iliad of Homer, various tragedy plays of the great 5th century BC Athenians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and a 1st century BC Roman named Virgil, whose Aeneid picks up where Homer left off and was relying upon sources that we don't have any longer. The war originated from a quarrel between the goddesses Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite after Eris, the goddess of strife and discord, gave them a golden apple known as the Apple of Discord, marked for the fairest. Zeus sent the goddesses to a Trojan prince named Paris, who judged that Aphrodite was the fairest and should receive the apple. In exchange, Aphrodite promised him the love of any woman in the world. Well, when a diplomatic mission brought Paris to Sparta, he was smitten by the beauty of their queen Helen, so he invoked Aphrodite to cash in on her promised debt. So she made Helen the most beautiful of all women and wife of Menelaus, fall in love with Paris. And the two escaped to Troy in the middle of the night. An enraged Menelaus thus appealed to his brother Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, to attack Troy and bring back his wife. Due to his power and prestige, Agamemnon was able to summon most of the Greek cities to join his cause. The myth that supports this is the Oath of Tyndarus, who was Helen's father in which all of the Greek leaders that had wooed Helen swore an oath that they would protect her marriage with whomever she chose, which turned out to be Menelaus. So when Helen was abducted by Paris, the oath kicked in, but the wily Odysseus didn't want to go and resist it. Since Achilles was too young to swear the oath, his mother Thetis dressed him like a girl and tried to hide him. Obviously, in the end, both heroes joined the expedition. The combined Greek fleet met at Aulis, on the Euboean Strait, to set sail for war against Troy. But before they could, Agamemnon was forced to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, because his troops had accidentally killed one of her sacred deer. If he had not, Artemis wouldn't have made the winds favorable enough for them to sail to Troy. So Agamemnon obliged and tricked his daughter into coming to Aulis by telling her that she was about to marry Achilles. When she arrived, she quickly found out that she was about to be sacrificed. In another version, Artemis substituted a deer at the last minute and whisked her away to work at her temple, unbeknownst to the people watching. She's a goddess after all. In any event, the Greeks were able to launch their ships towards Troy to take back Helen, or as Homer put it, she was the face that launched a thousand ships. The Greeks landed on the shoreline and made a strong base on the Trojan plain. A ten-year siege ensued with fluctuating fortunes on both sides, helped and hindered by the gods and goddesses. In the last year, Prince Hector, the greatest warrior of the Trojans, killed Patrocles, who was possibly Achilles' boyfriend or at least very close friend. In his rage, an epic battle ensued with Achilles slain Hector. At some point later, Paris managed to kill Achilles with a poisonous arrow before he was fatally wounded by an arrow himself. After ten years of siege, Troy was finally taken by a cunning ruse. 
The Greeks snuck into Troy inside a giant wooden horse that was left behind as a sacrificial gift to the gods after they supposedly sailed back to Greece. The Trojans gladly wheeled it into their city, and that night, after everyone was drunk from celebrating, the Greeks came out of the horse and took the city. Troy was sacked and burned by the victorious Greeks, and Helen was rescued. King Priam was executed, and the royal women were hauled off as slaves. Menelaus and Helen both went back to Sparta, where they ruled until the end of their days. Agamemnon, however, felt the full effect of his wife's ire. Clytemnestra, loathing him for sacrificing their daughter, and her lover Aegisthus, who happened to be Agamemnon's cousin, murdered him when he arrived back at Mycenae while he was taking a relaxing bath. As for the other Greek kings, most made it back home safely, like Nestor. But Odysseus went through perilous adventures for ten years until he arrived home, while others were buried on the shores of Troy, like Achilles and Ajax. A certain Trojan prince, named Aeneas, managed to escape to start a new life for himself and establish the Latin race in Italy. So that's the mythology. Well, a short abridged version of it at least. If you're curious to learn more about the Trojan War, I definitely recommend you check out Trojan War the Podcast. Jeff is an unbelievable storyteller, and I look forward to every Friday when his newest episode drops. The historicity of the Trojan War is still subject to debate, however. Most Greek authors later thought that the war was a historical event, but believed that the Homeric poems had exaggerated the events to suit the demands of poetry. For instance, Thucydides, who is known for being critical, considers it a true event, but doubts that 1186 ships were actually sent to Troy. In his plays, Euripides changed many Greek myths at will, especially those of the Trojan War. Diochrysostom argued that while the war was historical, it ended with the Trojans winning, and the Greeks attempted to hide that fact. In any event, in the 19th century, it was generally agreed upon that the Trojan War had never happened, and Troy never existed. Then, Heinrich Schliemann came onto the scene, and published his excavations at Asarlik, which he and the others believed to be Troy, and those of Mycenae. Today, most scholars agree that the Trojan War is based on a historical core of a Greek expedition against the city of Troy, but few would argue that the Homeric poems faithfully represent the actual events of the war. Like all myths, the question lies in determining what all is real and what all is false. The site of Troy is associated with the Greek city-state of Ilion. According to metrical evidence in Homer, it seems to show that the spelling of Ilion formerly began with a digamma, so it would have been pronounced Willion before it was later dropped off. Thus, it has been connected with the Hittite city of Willusa. Troy was on the periphery of the Hittite kingdom and was in a strategic location. Being in northwestern Anatolia, near Mount Ida, and southeast of the Hellespont, Troy controlled access to the Black Sea and seems to have been a flourishing mercantile city in its own right. It's not hard to see why the seafaring Mycenaeans would come into conflict with Troy. But was it a conflict due to being trade rivals in the northern Aegean? Or did the Mycenaeans simply just sack another city for more wealth? Or could it have really been because a Trojan prince seduced and kidnapped a Spartan queen? Well, let's take a look at the evidence and try to piece together the historicity for the Trojan War. First, let's make sure that it was actually the Mycenaean Greeks who fought at Troy, and not anyone else. To do this, let's look at what references we have of them on the historical record. 
Although we have no first-hand accounts to what they called themselves, Homer refers to the Bronze Age people as the Achaeans, 598 times, the Danaeans, 138 times, or the Argives, 182 times. This might actually have some weight to it, though, as they are referenced in the Egyptian and Hittite records. Egyptian records mentioned a Danaea land around 1450 BC, during the reign of Thutmose III. Around 75 years later, this land was geographically defined in an inscription on the Colossi of Memnon from the reign of Amenhotep III, around 1375 BC, where a number of Danaea cities are mentioned. Among them, cities such as Mycenae, Notfleon, and Thebes have been identified with certainty. So it's safe to assume that Danaea is equivalent to the Danaioi, or Danaeans, of Homer. But what about the more commonly used Achaeans? For that, we must turn to the Hittite record, which, as you will see, is by far the most important. Since they were the dominant power in Anatolia, if there was a 10-year-long war on their turf, one would think that they would have left behind some sort of writing detailing it. Luckily for us, they were meticulous documenters, and we have thousands of clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform writings on their foreign relations. They were a land-based empire, but at their fringes, there were a number of vassal states on the western and southern coast of Anatolia, such as Troy. They managed their own affairs, but assisted the Hittites with trade and supported them militarily. Hittite records mention a nation lying to the west, called Ahiyawa, which is believed by most to be the cuneiform version of Achaea. However, a precise geographical definition of the term cannot be drawn from the texts. It could be a general label for the Mycenaean world, or the Mycenaeans on the coast of Asia Minor, of which Miletus was a prominent Mycenaean city. In any event, these letters mention that gifts were exchanged between Hittite and Ahiyatwin kings, the Ahiyatwins learned chariot warfare from them, and an Ahiyatwin god was summoned to cure a Hittite king. However, relations weren't always peaceful. In fact, they were usually pretty tense. On the last episode, we talked about the extent of the Mycenaean trade network which makes it very peculiar that very few Mycenaean objects have been found in Hittite lands, while only a dozen Hittite objects have been found at Mycenaean sites, even though hundreds of goods from all other regional powers can be found in each civilization. This leads one to suspect that maybe they weren't on as friendly of terms as some of the letters make it seem, and this could be evidence of history's first trade embargo. Furthermore, the records show that the Ahiyawins often interfered in Hittite affairs and even supported anti-Hittite uprisings through local vassal rulers. Around 1430 BC, Hittite records show that their king, Tutalia, was forced to put down two rebellions in Asuwa, which was the Hittite name for the region of northwestern Anatolia. A sword has been found with a Hittite inscription celebrating their victories, and interestingly enough, it's a Mycenaean sword which suggests that they were involved in some capacity. Furthermore, the record specifically mentions Ahiyawa and the islands they controlled, seeming to imply that the anti-Hittite rebellion received a certain degree of support from the Ahiyawans. 22 names are included, but two names in particular, Walusa and Terusa, refer to the city of Troy and its surrounding lands, the Troad. Around 1400 BC, Hittite records mention the military activities of an Ahiyawan warlord named Artasiwa, who attacked Hittite vassals in western Anatolia. It has been suggested that this is a possible Hittite way of writing the Greek name of Atreus, 
However, this is dubious. Since Atreus was the father of Agamemnon, the leader of the Trojan War, and the Trojan War wouldn't happen until sometime in the 13th century BC, at the earliest, the chronology doesn't line up. Regardless, he is the first known Ahiyawin leader, although his exact authority inside the Mycenaean world is unclear. The Hittite descriptions seem to agree that he was a local ruler in western Anatolia, rather than a high king of all the Ahiyawins. The Hittite record, called the Indictment of Matawada, describes the military campaign of Artasiwa in southwest Anatolia, probably in the region of Lycia. In the early 14th century BC, there was an increase in Mycenaean findings at Miletus, so it's possible that Artasiwa was the ruler of Miletus, or used it as a military base for his expeditions in Anatolia. In any event, Artasiwa launched a campaign deploying an army that included 100 war chariots and attacked regions which were Hittite vassals, or at least under a certain degree of Hittite influence. Among them, he attacked the Hittite vassal Matawada, likely a prince of the kingdom of Arzawa, and managed to expel him from his country. Matawada found refuge in the court of the Hittite king, Tutalia II, and was installed by him as a vassal somewhere in western Anatolia. Artasiwa launched a second attack against Matawada and managed again to defeat him. As a result, the Hittites decided to get involved and dispatched an army. Although the outcome of the battle remained unresolved, Artasiwa withdrew his troops from the battlefield. After his retreat from the Anatolian mainland, Matawada was again installed as a Hittite vassal in the region. Later, Artasiwa invaded the island of Alashia, or Cyprus, together with a number of his Anatolian allies including his former enemy, Matawada, oddly enough. This worried the Hittites, since they considered the island one of their dependencies. The campaign was launched while the Luka people of southern Anatolia provided the necessary naval support. The invading force finally succeeded in controlling Alashia and overthrowing the local Hittite authorities. This seems to be corroborated by the archaeological record, as Mycenaean settlements in Cyprus, dating from that time, were on earth there. The campaigns of Artasiwa represent the earliest recorded Mycenaean military activity on Anatolia, as well as the first conflict with the Hittites. A decorated shard of pottery from the Hittite capital Hattusa has been found that depicts a warrior in body armor and a boar's tusk helmet, clearly a Mycenaean warrior. Moreover, based on the fact that Artasiwa launched a military campaign in Anatolia and fielded 100 chariots, in addition to infantry, it has been suggested by some scholars that the Ahiwatans must have had the military capacity of at least three times the size of the Mycenaean kingdom of Pylos, based on the information recorded on the Linear B tablets unearthed from their palace. Based on this view, the Ahiwatans under Artasiwa may have formed some kind of alliance, which included several Mycenaean kingdoms. Also, this is around the same time that Knossos was put to the torch, so it could be possible that this grand alliance may have had a hand in both. This is all just speculation on my part, though. Anyway, the rest of the 14th century BC was a period of Mycenaean expansion on the Anatolian coast, as Ahiwa and military activity in the region continues to be attested through several Hittite records. More than likely, they were plundering raids for resources and slave labor. Stemming from this, Homer's frequent and complimentary description of Greek heroes as sackers of cities gives us an insight into the Mycenaean mindset. There is no doubt that the Mycenaeans had always added to their wealth not just by peaceful trading, 
but also by the use of brute force in wars and piratical raids. The more loot and slaves brought back to the city, the higher a king's prestige grew. Since the Mycenaean civilization wasn't unified, it's quite possible that one Mycenaean city may have raided an area, while another Mycenaean city simultaneously traded there as well. This would explain why we find Mycenaean pottery at Anatolian sites. Later, around 1315 BC, Hittite interests in the region were again threatened by an anti-Hittite rebellion headed by Arzawa, a Hittite vassal state that encompassed the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, with the support of the king of Ahiyawa. Around the same time, Ahiyawa is reported to have seized various islands, presumably in the Aegean, where archaeological evidence supports Mycenaean settlements and influence. The Manapa Tarhunta letter mentions first an attack on Walusa, and then how a notorious local troublemaker, called Piyama Radu, is harrying the western lands. The Hittite king, presumably Mersili II, ordered Manapa Tarhunta to drive out Piyama Radu himself, but Manapa Tarhunta's attempt failed, so a Hittite force was sent out to deal with the problem. Before marching to Walusa, the expeditionary force camped at the land near the Siha River, which places Walusa in the northwest corner of Anatolia. Thus, phonetically and geographically, Walusa can reliably be identified with Troy. Piyamaradu has been suggested by some scholars to be King Priam of Troy. His attacks on the western vassals thus has been interpreted to be an attempt at reasserting his own dynastic claim. This seems like dubious speculation to me, though. In any event, Walusa is discussed again in the Alexandus Treaty, around 1280 BC. Alexandus was the king of Walusa. He sealed a treaty with the Hittite king Muatali II, pledging military support to any campaigns that the Hittites should enter. A few years later, they would fight alongside the Hittites against Ramses II and the Egyptians in the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC. But in the treaty, Muatali II downplays the importance of royal ancestry, suggesting that Alexandus had come to power by other means than regular succession so that Alexandus is not necessarily a blood relation of the former king. This has been taken as a hint that he may have been an early Greek ruler called Alexander, and he has been associated with Homer's Alexandros of Ilion, who is better known by his nickname, Paris of Troy. However, this is uncertain, since Alexandus lived at least a half a century before the generally agreed-upon date of the Trojan War. Although the name Alexandus, which falls outside conventional Hittite language, must be a transcription of the Greek name, Alexandros. Also, one of the three gods guaranteeing the terms of the treaty on the side of Alexandus is Apollonius, who is usually equated to Apollo. In the Iliad, Apollo is portrayed as the foremost champion of the Trojans and the one who helped Paris kill Achilles by guiding his arrow to shoot the heel of Achilles, the only part of him that wasn't immortal. Around 1250 BC, another anti-Hittite movement, led by Piyamaradu again, broke out and was supported by the king of Ahiyawa. Piyamaradu ravaged the land of Walusa and then led an armed takeover of the island of Lesbos, which he then handed over to the Ahiyawan king. As a result of this instability, the Hittite king generally accepted as Hattusili III initiated correspondence to an unknown Ahiyawan king. He requests the extradition of Piyamaradu to Hattusa under assurances of safe conduct. He calls him great king and brother 
as if the Ahiawans were a powerful empire equal to those in the Near East, because brother was a designation used by the kings of the Near East with each other. So this gives us insight on the status of the Ahiawans in the eyes of the Hittites, although he may have just been stroking his ego. We also learn that the brother of an Ahiawan king was active in the rebellion, as he was recruiting men to join Piyamaradu. His name was Tawagalawa, hence it is referred to as the Tawagalawa letter. Many believe the Greek equivalent of his name is Eteocles, or Etowoklois. In myth, Eteocles was the son of Oedipus and ruled Thebes jointly with his brother, a generation before the Trojan War. It's a curious parallel, although not conclusive. Anyway, the letter also refers to an earlier episode between the two kingdoms over Walusa, for which they went to war, seeming to corroborate a historical Trojan War. But the evidence seems to indicate that the Ahiyawans went to blows with the Hittites over Walusa, not the Ahiyawans and the Walusans going to war. Furthermore, another letter, the Milawata letter, comes from the Hittite king, presumably Tutalia IV, to an unknown vassal king in western Anatolia. He demands that the vassal king turn over a fugitive from Walusa, named Walmu, to a Hittite envoy so that the Hittites can reinstall him as king at Walusa. The text seems to imply that Ahiyawan raids may have led to Walmu being overthrown. The reason for its title, the Milawata Letter, is that it mentions that both parties in the letter had campaigned on the borders of Milawata. Both Milawanda and Milawata are accepted as ancient names for Miletus. It is believed that this letter was written at some point in the later 13th century BC, since the letter mentions the infamous adventurer Piyamaradu, but as a figure of the past. If so, is it possible this is describing the attack on Walusa by the Ahiawans that is a historical Trojan War? It's possible, but not conclusive. Virgil tells us that King Priam was slain, Troy was sacked, and the Greeks sailed home. Not that Priam escaped Troy and fled to a nearby city while the Greeks occupied Troy. So now that we have looked at all of the references for the Mycenaeans and the Trojans on the Hittite record, let's take a look at the actual archaeological evidence from the site of Troy itself. When Schliemann found Troy, he quickly learned that there were nine cities all built on top of the same spot, as people just kept on building right into the Roman era. They were given sequential numbers, with Troy 1 being the lowermost settlement retrieved and thus the oldest. It had been an important site since the beginning of the Bronze Age, and for much of the time had been technologically ahead of mainland Greece. At first, Schliemann found a formidable wealth of gold in the next to last bottom, Troy 2 and assumed this to be Homer's Troy. It was indeed an impressive fortress, having huge fortification walls, made of mud brick and timber, and numerous towers and bastions and a large central unit of the Megaron type. Its imports show a fairly wide range of contact, but Troy too was found to be roughly contemporary with early Helladic II, which is about a millennium prior to the Trojan War. But that wouldn't be determined until the 1930s, at the moment of its discovery in the 1870s, Schliemann was convinced that Troy II was the Troy of Priam, and thus he named all of the gold, silver, bronze, and copper objects that he found as the treasure of Priam. All of the objects were removed illegally from the site and within a week were smuggled to Greece, which ran counter to his agreement with the Ottoman Turks. After he was finished at his next stop, Mycenae, he published his findings and the Ottomans launched lawsuits against him. 
Schliemann was a rich man, so he paid them off, and then took the treasures on a traveling tour around Europe, hoping one of the illustrious museums would buy it, until the treasure of Priam eventually made its way back to Berlin. But after World War II, it was nowhere to be found. We have a picture of his wife wearing some of the jewelry, so we know it existed. Decades went by until the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. Afterwards, half of the treasure was found in Moscow, and the other half in St. Petersburg and Leningrad. It turns out that almost every piece of it was doctored to make it look better. Knowing Schliemann's scoundrel nature, it would come to no surprise if he added objects from Mycenae to his Trojan artifacts either. Furthermore, in his haste to get to Layer 2, which he thought was Homer's Troy, he used such rough methods and destroyed the middle of the city and any records kept by the Homeric Trojans were most likely destroyed. He plowed through layers of soil and everything in them without proper record keeping, no mapping of finds and few descriptions of discoveries. However, archaeology at Schliemann's time was in its infancy, a point Carl Blagon would make when he said, Although there were some regrettable blunders, those criticisms are largely colored by a comparison with modern techniques of digging. But it is only fair to remember that before 1876, very few persons, if anyone, yet really knew how excavations should properly be conducted. There was no science of archaeological investigation, and there was probably no other digger who was better than Schliemann in actual field work. Although Schliemann doctored artifacts and destroyed much evidence, he did show that the myths of Homer had their feet in history, and thus contributed very much to the growing field of archaeology. Anyway, despite Schliemann's inventive efforts, Troy too was not the Homeric Troy. Further excavations were done by Wilhelm Dortfield, Carl Blagon, and Manfred Korfman. The next three cities, Troy 3, 4, and 5, show no break in culture and are not particularly distinguishable, although there is a noticeable decline in prosperity. But soon after 2000 BC, there was a new people in Troy who revived its city, most likely during the Indo-European migrations that we spoke about a few episodes back. The new settlement of Troy VI was the largest to date, and in its final phase, towards the end of the 14th century BC, it could stand comparable with the fortified citadel of Mycenae, and larger than Tiryns. It was a walled city with fortified towers reaching a height of 30 feet, and an estimated area of 50 square acres, with a population of between 5,000 and 10,000, which would have made it a very large and important city by the standards of its day. The king lived in a royal palace, and his main officials and advisors lived inside the walls. The bulk of the agricultural population, as at Mycenae, probably lived outside the walls. Troy VI is definitely a contender for the Homeric Troy. However, it was destroyed at some time around 1300 BC, and the absence of any traces of fire and the pattern of violence reflected in the way the stones fell point to an earthquake as the culprit. There is no evidence of a change in the composition or culture of the population in the succeeding Troy VII. The walls were restored, but there are two significant features which are not found in earlier layers at Troy. The houses are built very crowded, as if it was important to bring as many people as possible from the countryside within the protection of the walls. And throughout the citadel, within the houses, there are large storage vessels sunk in the ground, as if they were storing up extra food, maybe for an anticipated siege. Trouble was clearly expected, though we cannot assume it was necessarily from the Greeks. 
Nowadays, Troy 7a is the generally accepted city of the Trojan War. The classical authors calculated the construction of the walls of Troy by Poseidon and Apollo to 1282 BC, so the archaeological dating at least corresponds. The war is believed to have occurred sometime between 1250 and 1190 BC, in large part due to the analysis of the fire destruction dealt to Lair 7a which also corresponds to the various dates given by later Greek authors for the sack of Troy, with the traditional date being 1184 BC by Eratosthenes. In addition, human remains were found in houses and in the streets, and a skeleton with skull fractures and a broken jawbone has been found amongst the debris, suggesting that there was no time to bury them, as well as signs of war by means of bronze arrowheads of early Greek design and sling bullets. One of the problems, though, is that Troy 7a is nowhere near as impressive as described in Homer. Troy 6 would fit that description better, actually. But Troy 6 wasn't burned or looted, but destroyed by an earthquake, as mentioned before. But in Troy 7a, there doesn't seem to be a massive-sized palace, nor signs of great wealth. If we had to rely solely on the archaeological evidence, without Homer, the destruction of Troy 7a would seem to have been a very minor event and we would assume that the destroyers were either some local power or a new people pressing down from the north. Furthermore, the site remained inhabited following the destruction of Troy 7a. In the next settlement, Troy 7b, there has been found a new type of poorly designed pottery, not consistent with Mycenaean standards. If Troy was destroyed by the Greeks, and so far as the archaeological record goes, the Greeks received no immediate gain from the war, other than booty. They did not occupy the site, and they did not destroy Troy forever. If their main purpose was to extend economic interest into the Hellespont and beyond, there is no trace of their success. So it doesn't seem that this was a war to eliminate them as trading rivals. Instead, it appears to be a raid, simply to plunder a city recently weakened by an earthquake. Just to complete the story, Troy 7b was deserted in the mid-10th century BC and the site remained uninhabited for more than 200 years before a new settlement, Troy 8, was established around 700 BC as the ancient Greek city of Ilion, and would be destroyed by the Romans during the civil wars in the 1st century BC. It was then refounded as the Roman city of Ilium in the 20s BC. You may ask, what about the Trojan horse? Well, there has been speculation that the Trojan horse may have been a battering ram resembling a horse and that the description of the use of this device was then transformed into a myth by later oral historians, who were not present at the battle, and were unaware of that meaning of the name. Another interesting theory is that the Trojan horse was symbolic of Poseidon, god of the sea and earthquakes, and whose favorite animal was the horse. Perhaps the Trojan horse was a thanks offering by the Greeks to Poseidon for sending an earthquake to destroy the city's walls and allowing them to deliver the final blow. There's no way to prove if this is true, but it's interesting nonetheless. After piecing together the evidence, with our modern understanding of the Late Bronze Age, it appears likely that there was not one significant event, but continual hostility for two to three centuries on the coastline between the Greeks and the non-Greeks. An earthquake severely weakened the city of Walusa, and the Greeks relished the opportunity to plunder the once glorious settlement. It was not a grandiose ten-year war, bringing about the annihilation of Troy. Certainly, we must reject the scale of operations that Homer describes, 
But national epics are almost always based on actual events, however much they embellish or distort the details. So it is difficult to believe that the war, or wars in this case, was an entirely fictitious invention. It was possibly remembered by later Greeks, after all, while other operations in the 15th and 14th centuries BC were either forgotten or smudged together into the last clash. Because as we are about to see, it was the last signal success of the Mycenaean civilization. According to legend, the Greeks sacked Troy and returned back to Greece, laden with very rich booty. But at what was presumably the height of their prosperity, they suffered a fatal blow. Their standing as a regional power should have been made more secure after eliminating the Trojans. But as it turned out, the Trojans weren't the Greeks' biggest threat. Archaeological evidence shows that in the mid-13th century BC, Thessaly and Boeotia were under attack. Thebes and Orchomenus were burned to the ground and a number of buildings surrounding the citadel of Mycenae were attacked and burned. These incidents appear to have triggered signs of stress and anxiety concerning the threat of another attack. There was a great increase in fortification alterations as the walls were being expanded bigger and longer at Mycenae, Tyrants, and Athens. In addition, Mycenae and Tyrants built secret subterranean passages to water supplies outside of the walls, suggesting that they were preparing for sieges. And a wall was built across the Isthmus of Corinth, where evidence remains of nearly two miles, although we aren't certain if it was completed or not. Linear B tablets from Pylos refer to defenses by means of watchers on the coasts, but all of these defensive measures were in vain. These disasters set off a series of events so severe that by the end of the 12th century BC, the great Mycenaean civilization was gone completely from the historical record. The collapse of late Bronze Age Greece was actually part of a wider catastrophe that overwhelmed the entire eastern Mediterranean region and was even felt somewhat in the west. Scholars still disagree on what exactly happened. Because the evidence is very scanty, so many theories abound that try to explain the Bronze Age collapse, both in Greece and in the greater Mediterranean as a whole. A common belief is that the Bronze Age world grew too dependent on trade, and when issues started to arise, the entire system came crumbling down. Those said issues have been heavily debated, ranging from internal strife between local centers of power to some sort of economic breakdown, possibly caused by earthquakes, climate change, drought, famine, or a combination of all, which put a stress on natural resources in the north, possibly exacerbated by the Trojan War, or wars, as it probably was, and the Hittites' constant fighting with Egypt and Assyria. This in turn caused many hungry peasants to leave their homes to wander around the eastern Mediterranean, to seek new places to live, or to raid the shorelines in order to survive. Whatever the cause, these migrations of populations displaced other populations, leading to a wave of refugees and warrior bands spreading throughout the entire Mediterranean region, destroying political stability, economic prosperity, and international contact between the various civilizations. It's highly likely that the Ahiawans from Anatolia and the Greek mainlanders were part of these refugees causing havoc in the eastern Mediterranean. In fact, the attack on Troy 7a has been suggested by some to be a part of this, not a separate event. This period of disruption certainly lasted for decades, and in some areas it may have gone on much longer. As a rough generalization, it seems accurate to say that the period from roughly 1250 to 1050 BC saw numerous catastrophes for the various Mediterranean civilizations. 
The most informative records of this period are Egyptian, Hittite, and Levantine. In 1230 BC, the Hittites under Tutuilea IV were defeated by Tukultin Anerta and the Assyrians in the Battle of Nerea. The Assyrians were the rising power in the Near East, and their victories significantly shifted the balance of power as Hittite power began to wane. Following this defeat, another contemporary Hittite text reveals that Hittite vassal states were to prohibit Ahiyawid ships from reaching Assyrian-controlled harbors as part of a trade embargo imposed on Assyria. The Ahiyawans and the Assyrians weren't the only threats for the Hittites, as Tutuilea IV felt the need to invade the island of Cyprus, possibly because the island was being used as a launching off point for raids on the Anatolian coastline. Maybe it was the Ahiyawans who had a large presence in Cyprus, or maybe it was an early group of these refugees mentioned earlier, or maybe the Ahiyawans were a part of this early refugee group. Regardless, the Hittites were victorious, and the island was annexed. In 1210 BC, the next Hittite king, Shubialuma II, had to fight off an invasion fleet coming from the direction of Cyprus, using Levantine ships, including a naval battle against Al-Ashia off the coast of Cyprus. The invasion itself shows that the island, or at least part of it, was a staging ground for volatility. Then, the Egyptian record refers to an attack in the Nile Delta by a mysterious group from the north called the Sea Peoples by later scholars. In 1207 BC, during the reign of the pharaoh Merneptah. Although he was able to push them out, the Hittites did not share the same fate. Around the same time, the Hittites were assaulted and many of the cities in Anatolia were brought to heel. Hittite records continue until 1205 BC, and then there is silence. Through archaeology and records of their neighbors, especially Ugarit, we know that the Hittite capital of Hattusa was sacked and destroyed at this time. The likely culprits probably were the Proto-Phrygians, an Indo-European tribe that had migrated from Thrace over the Bosporus. The loss of the capital meant civilization disintegrated almost immediately in Anatolia. However, a smallish Neo-Hittite empire would emerge in the Iron Age, ruled from Carchemish in northern Syria that would control some of southeastern Anatolia. Their rulers claimed descent from the Hittite kings. Moving into Syria and the northern Levant, the Sea People soon sacked major Canaanite cities, including Ugarit, around 1190 BC. Only a few coastal strongholds, notably Byblos and Sidon, were able to weather the assault and emerge relatively unscathed. They would form the backbone of the Phoenician trading empire that we will touch upon more in future episodes. However, most didn't weather the attacks. In the instance of Ugarit, the king reported seeing 20 warships off the coast and wrote a letter to the neighboring king of Alashia on Cyprus that was baked and preserved in the fire that leveled Ugarit that gives us insight on these invasions. Then, all of the major cities of the southern Levant, controlled by Egypt, were also violently destroyed. Attacks on Egypt were repeated in 1181 and 1177 BC during the reign of Ramses III. Although the Egyptians were able to stave these sea peoples off, the enormous effort and cost in doing so left Egypt a weakened and it would never fully recover its former power. The first way to approach these mysterious sea peoples is through their names, found in the Egyptian record. Most of the names of their tribes are very suggestive, and they have been tentatively identified. The Peleset with the biblical Philistines, who gave their name to Palestine. The Ekwesh with the Greek Achaioi. The Denyan with the Greek Danoi. The Luca, with those who gave their name to the southwest Anatolian region of Lycia. 
the Sheridan with the Sardinians, the Shekelesh with the Sicilians, the Terish with the Tyrrhenians or Etruscans, the Chekar with the Greek Teucrians from Anatolia, and the Meshwesh with the Libyans. Yes, it is believed that the Greeks had outgrown their raids on Anatolia and turned southwards to join up with these other displaced peoples. In any event, these so-called sea peoples did not constitute a united population in any sense. Rather, they should be thought of as independent bands displaced by various political and economic troubles of their homeland. What evidence we have for the sea peoples points not to one group spreading destruction across the eastern Mediterranean in a single tidal wave of violence, but rather to many disparate bands. A chain reaction of attacks and flights in a recurring and expanding cycle put even more bands of raiders on the move. Some bands of sea peoples were perhaps made up exclusively of men conducting raids, who then expected to return to their homeland. Other groups of warriors and their families may have been looking for a new place to settle, where they could live a more prosperous and secure life than in the disturbed area from which they had voluntarily departed or had been driven from by other raiders. Any such people in flight could not expect a friendly welcome in foreign shores, and they had to be prepared to fight for their new homes. In the end, all of this fighting in motion redrew the political map of the Mediterranean, and perhaps its population map as well. Although it is unclear how many groups actually resettled permanently at great distances from their original sites in this period, the Sea Peoples weren't the main driving force of the late Bronze Age collapse as a whole, but it was a confluence of many factors. They seem to be both victims of these factors and opportunists, forced to seek a new home amidst the chaos. The reasons for all of this violent commotion is still mysterious in our present state of knowledge, but it had dire consequences for the Near East and Greece. The end of the Mycenaean civilization happened in different stages. Pylos was destroyed by fire around 1200 BC, which presumably was when all of these Linear B tablets were cooked and thus preserved. The site of Pylos would be abandoned and never resettled. However, there is no indication of an armed struggle like at Troy. All we have are pottery, clay tablets, and a burned city. Linear B tablets list some 600 people to be levied to serve as rowers. We are left without definitive evidence, but it seems that it wasn't for military defenses, but to evacuate the city. They torched their city, loaded up their ships, and got out of town. Around 1190 to 1180 BC, Mycenaean tyrants were felled by an earthquake. Mycenae was then reoccupied, but on a much smaller scale. But a second attack struck Mycenae around 1150 BC, from which it did not recover. Tyrants actually recovered and grew in size and population in the 12th century BC, possibly due to an influx of refugees. But by the end of the century, it too had declined into a group of small villages surrounding the citadel. The places that were not destroyed were either completely abandoned or shrank drastically in size. As a result of this turmoil, specific regions in mainland Greece witnessed a dramatic population decrease, especially Boeotia, the Argolid, and Mycenae. A lot of these displaced peoples probably migrated to Anatolia, Cyprus, and the Levantine coast to take part in the chaos ensuing there, as was mentioned earlier. Nevertheless, other regions on the edge of the Mycenaean world prospered such as the Ionian Islands to the west, the northwestern Peloponnese, parts of Attica and a number of Aegean islands. Paradoxically, Athens lapsed into a collection of small villages around its acropolis, 
even though its palace and town appears to have avoided destruction. The identity of the attacks on the Greek mainland remains one of the great unsolved mysteries of Greek history. An old theory on the collapse of the Mycenaean world centered on a movement of ethnic tribes who pressed into the Peloponnese from the north. This theory also is connected to the later Greek myth of the return of the Heraclidae, who were the exiled sons of Heracles, a mythical king of Tyrants and the greatest of the Greek heroes. The Heraclidae were expelled from the Peloponnese and returned 80 years after the Trojan War to reclaim dominion over the territories their father had held and which they believed was their inheritance. So the theory is that they did, and thus they destroyed the palaces and conquered the region. However, a more modern view argues that an invasion came from Greek-speaking tribes from the north, who lived in the area of the Pindus Mountains in Epirus and Thessaly, meaning they were situated on the periphery of the Mycenaean world, but were not really a part of it. Since during the historical period, the Peloponnesians spoke a dialect of Greek, called Doric, 19th century scholars have referred to this event as the Dorian Invasion. In any event, as wave after wave poured into Greece, they either killed off or pushed out the weakened Mycenaeans and set up shop in the abandoned lands. Some probably intermarried and wiped out the Achaean language and culture and imposed their own. Some scholars believe that the Achaeans may have been driven into the mountains as well since the land on the northern side of the Peloponnese is called Achaea. Also, there were people in the mountains of Arcadia who did not speak the Doric dialect. Further evidence given for a so-called Dorian invasion is that there were new items after the collapse of Mycenaean culture. Iron weapons were used instead of bronze. Fibula pins were used to hold a cloak together. Also, the Mycenaeans buried their dead, whereas these new people used cremation. Thus, the belief was that the less civilized, tougher Dorians were assisted by superior iron weapons in either killing the Achaeans or driving them away, and replaced their material culture with their own. However, there has been much modern dispute over this, by those who believe that culture change can happen, in fact, without the population being replaced. The iron is now believed to have come not from the north, but the east. Cremation instead of burial could have been due to impoverishment, rather than newcomers. We should also expect to see a growth of population in the lands that became Dorian, but evidence suggests that in the Peloponnese, there was a sharp decline in population. This is what I believe is the more likely explanation for the loss of this once glorious civilization. With the destruction of the Mycenaean palaces, this near eastern type of social and economic organization would disappear forever from Greece. Yet, in Egypt and the Near East, which also suffered severe shocks themselves in the late Bronze Age, the ancient pattern of highly centralized, rigidly hierarchical, monarchical states continued. This is a good indication that underneath the veneer of great wealth and stability, the Mycenaean economy and government were shallowly rooted, essentially fragile systems, dependent on others. The populations were growing so large, and Greece doesn't have much arable land, so they need a consistent source from the outside. Which is fine when things are going well, but with the almost total interruption of Mediterranean commerce during and after the general chaos of the 13th century BC, this caused a fundamental breakdown in their way of life. It's certainly possible that this led to internal warfare among the kingdoms for what precious resources were available, which could explain the destruction of some palaces. The eventual failure of the palace economies and their inability to recover had a devastating effect on the population at large, 
which was dependent on the system for its survival. The people, desperate for food, may have felt it necessary to join in these raiding parties going on along the eastern Mediterranean. Famine and emigration could certainly have set the backdrop for a massive population drop in the 1100s BC. The Dorians, or whatever you want to call them, saw a weekend in fractured Greece and used this opportunity to push southwards. The Dorians may have attacked the Mycenaeans, or they may have not. Perhaps the coming of the Dorians was not really an invasion, but the filling of the political vacuum created by the obliteration of the Mycenaean palace economy. They imposed on the Peloponnese, but came down in waves of tribes over several centuries, not one large mass invasion. This would explain why some of the palaces didn't suffer physical damage, but declined and stagnated just the same as those that had been burned to the ground, either by friendly or enemy fire. We will probably never know for certain why the Mycenaean civilization ended so abruptly and with such finality, but with the first stage of Greek civilization coming to a close, we now see the beginning of a new era, so different that when the Greeks looked back upon their late Bronze Age past, they could only imagine it as a kind of mythical dream world, a time when gods and humans mingled together and heroes achieved superhuman feats. The memory of the Bronze Age is enshrined in two great epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but these two epics were written decades later by a mysterious, almost mythological man himself in Homer. On the next episode, we will dig deeper into these two famous epics that would essentially become the Bible for later Greeks. They give us an invaluable look into the Greek ethos. We will also address the Homeric question, which asks if Homer was even a real person. Was there a real world that Homer's poems refer to? If so, what world was it? Was it the Mycenaean Bronze Age? Was it the post-Mycenaean world that succeeded the Bronze Age, that we call the Dark Age? Was it the period in which Homer supposedly lived? Can we seek any historical information from these poems at all? Find out all this and more next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 8, The Dark Age and Homer. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Contemplations of Classical Antiquity from his album The Ancient Greek Cathar of Classical Antiquity. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. Thank you.